0: Hi everyone, and welcome to Witch Hassle. I am your host, Cooper Wilhelm, and I am very excited to bring you today's interview. I'm talking to Stephen Skinner about the Ars Notoria. The Ars Notoria is a very special grimoire, and Stephen Skinner has done something very special to it. So let's start with the basics. The Ars Notoria, it's a grimoire that was very popular in its time, and it works in a way that is not common among grimoires. Rather than the standard idea of, you know, you get some words, You get a sigil, you use the sigil and the words to summon some sort of uh, spirit, and the spirit does something like you you want it to, or something like that. The way the Ars Notoria functions is you are essentially given a number of incredibly ornate visuals, and you are to engage with those visuals directly. You stare upon them after a rather extensive ritual, and by doing so, you, and in this case, uh, typically you would be a monk, uh, you are able to learn certain kinds of information or certain kinds of skills incredibly readily with a with a supernatural uh, alacrity so you are essentially if you have the Ars Notoria you are se- essentially possessed of a kind of magical Adderall for monks and Stephen Skinner has done something remarkable here because previous editions of the Ars Notoria did not typically include very good renderings of these images which are the, the whole game. that is that is the whole ball game is these images. So Stephen Skinner, along with his uh, colleague Daniel Clark, put together an edition of these images and their various variations like something that I would call the definitive version of this if you ever wanted to use it. But then Steven Skinner went one step further. Stephen Skinner did *Ars Notoria version B, which is him actually testing out the system and cutting it down to its bare bones so that you can actually have a good sense of what you actually need to do to do the Ars Notoria without all the things that were thrown in around it to kind of hide the fact that you were doing magic. Because again, these are monks. It is a forbidden business they were going about as they were employing their grimoire pager to summon their celestial adderall dealer so he has with the help of daniel clark for the first part put together something very beautiful and i would say definitive and then gone through the trouble of actually showing you how to use it in a separate volume so i was very excited to talk to him about this and the thing is stephen skinner lives very far away from the noble hills of brooklyn and so to account for the time differences Uh, We talked at what was very early in the morning for me because I spare no labor expense for you, the listener. So something about this interview that you might uh, watch out for as you listen to it is uh, somewhere kind of around the halfway mark, you start hearing birds song because the birds are coming coming to life there. And then suddenly all these uh, car horns and uh, engines go by because, you know, it's the hustle bustle of the big city kind of waking up. Even though they say that New York City never goes to sleep, it does certainly get a bit quieter at night, depending on where you are and whether or not they're having one of those weird fireworks things they were having a year or two ago. That was very uh, exciting. Or if you live on one of the popular helicopter routes, which can be a thing anyway uh so very excited to bring you this conversation very pleased and grateful to be able to talk to stephen skinner about this he you know because the, the man is 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 full of wisdom and knowledge and the fact that he was willing to subject himself to my uh inane questions was frankly a uh, delight you know it, it was it was a joy for me uh so here's that interview without further explanation or ado please do enjoy i'll see you at the other side this book is something that i think is very rare in occult spaces, this idea of something that is a guide to another book. But I, I am curious, before we even get going, just for, for people who are unfamiliar, where does the Ars Notorious sit in the tradition of grimoires? Okay, that, that's a very interesting question. It's
1: one of the oldest that have been, as it were, available since uh, 1225, when it was first
0: available in Latin. Manuscript form.
1: Passed around uh, between monks and priests, but uh, that wasn't your question. Your question is more subtle than that. Most grimoires are catalogues of spirits and uh, invocations and how you you call up particular demons or spirits. But this one is quite different. It is not. Um, there is no real invocations in there and you're not calling up spirits or demons. What you're actually doing is trying to swallow whole subjects and other books. So it was an ideal for the student practice. It was also probably the most popular uh, Book of Magic uh, because there are um, well over 100 uh, copies of it in various forms in libraries and monasteries throughout Europe. Um, so it was very difficult when I first edited it to come up with a description as to what it was uh, because it was not uh, the same as anything else. You can't even easily say whether it's concerned with angels or with demons because the uh, the evocations, if that's what they are, uh, are in a strange language which appears to be mostly derived from Greek Um, and sprinkled through it are the names of some angels and also the names of some demons. So it seems to me that it was a technique for um, enabling students to understand subjects very, very rapidly. Uh, One of the the early practitioners in the the 17th century tested it out by actually going down to the local village and finding, uh, I think it was uh, somewhere between 14 and 20, Average guys, as it were, or um, and taking them back to the monastery and teaching him, teaching them Latin, um, which they just would not have had any appreciation of originally. And he found that they absorbed it very rapidly, uh, which is quite fascinating. But I, I've also tried uh, experimenting with other people and with myself, and I've, I've found that there's definitely uh, a more rapid uh, absorption rate. So there you have it. It's a it's not a grimoire in the call up demons and angels sense, but it is a grimoire which um, affects how you um, absorb information.
0: You actually, so you say in the um, in the Vol B, which is you know the book that we are we are ostensibly talking about, as opposed to just the, the first one. I guess we can talk about both, but like um, in Vol B, that this is not only not a sort of Solomonic book of magic or an astrological book of magic, it is, is very unique. But you also mentioned that the use of the word inspect suggests that these note are used sort of as 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 objects for scrying. Do you do, do you, in your experience feel as though that there is a there is an aspect of scrying to this or is it something is it something else
1: I do not I d I don't I don't think it's exactly scrying. Um, the the note are really quite unique and quite intricate drawings. And in the original text, even in 1200 and 1300, they're drawn very carefully. They're not your usual fairly scribbly sigil. And you are told to inspect them, but only at certain times and under certain conditions. And like you say, inspect is a, is a difficult word. How can just inspecting a picture do these things? Because of course, at the same time, you're, you're calling out the list of, of names. Because the uh, spoken bits are not an evocation, because between each of the words in the original manuscript there's a dot, which means that you say you say them and then you say the next one and then you say the next one and it's not connected up sentences. So I haven't come across this idea of inspecting a note anywhere outside of Ars Notoria. Oh, one thing I should make clear is that Ars Notoria was not the fourth part of the Lamegaton. It simply happened to be one copy of it in the manuscript uh, in which the Lamegaton was written, uh, and people just tacked it onto the end. The Lamegaton is very cl- clearly um, contains spirit lists, like in the Goetia uh, timings, uh, particular methods of contacting these spirits, but um, the Ars Notoria is, is definitely not part of that.
0: So, one of the authors, I guess part of perhaps where this confusion might have come from is that one of the authors, supposedly, of this is, is Solomon, uh, to whom the, uh, the Lamegaton is also ascribed. But one of the other authors is um, Apollonius of Tyana, who uh, I might understand was an ensouler of statues. So, it, are we to understand then that these note have a kind of ensouled aspect to them in some way? Are they. Should we be treating them as living beings to some extent?
1: Yes, Apollonius of Tyana is a fascinating um, guy. He he was more or less contemporary with Jesus Christ, and some people saw him even as competition. But he was a magician, and he was happy to state that he was a magician. And he did things like drive snake infestations and insect infestations out of cities. And he did it by creating really complicated and interesting-looking statues, which presumably all the townsfolk would come and inspect. Um, So in a way, it's it's almost the the parchment equivalent of a three-dimensional statue. So of the four uh, possible authors, Solomon... is is sort of in there because Solomon's always associated with magic. Apollonius of Tyana is in there because um, he created these magical statues and the notae are sort of magical diagrams. And Honorius of uh, Thebes is in there because his book, uh, Book of Honorius, later used some of the passages out of the the Asnatori. Notoria came first, and the sworn book lifted a number of the, well, I can't call them invocations, but lists of words that have to be spoken out loud. And then the last of the four is, is the prophet Manai, who uh, created the religion Manichaeism, and uh, his several of his holy books were heavily illustrated. So, They're the ingredients that went into making the Notoria. so by listing them as the the authors, may not really have been the authors, is more or less an indication of what to find in there. By a little bit of research, I figured out that uh, the Notoria had come from uh, Constantinople or Istanbul as it is now. Uh, because one of the uh, or two of the, the note actually are uh, illustrations of a statue configuration in Constantinople, which is totally unique in the world. I've seen the thing physically, it's a or two of them. Their columns sat on top of Medusa heads. And that is so unique that it can't have been created in any other city that, that I know of. So it came from Constantinople, so it obviously came from Greek. And so when I did the the practical um, version of it, I chopped out the, um, the, the Catholic uh, Latin hymns because they don't relate to the objectives and they don't work because I've tried it with them and I've tried it without, and it makes no difference. So by removing them, we've removed the... The layer of Christianity which is laid upon this book when it came from Constantinople to Italy. Beyond going backwards even further, uh, it's probably tempting to take it back in the direction of Apollonius of Tyana, so that would be back towards Tyana, which is uh, in modern-day Turkey, but that, that's not certain. It is certain that it came through Constantinople, but it's not certain that it came from Syria or Turkey.
0: I'm curious actually about the the Latin in this, because there are there are prayers in here which you suggest in your introduction that they are primarily a smokescreen just to to make this book seem much more Christian.
1: Yeah, indeed. Yeah.
0: Which I I wonder because how it was profoundly popular, but how illicit was this especially among i presume the sort of largely ecclesiastical audience because we've got you know
1: almost almost totally an ecclesiastical audience and i I think for a while in the 13th and 14th century it was probably considered quite acceptable it's only a little bit later when uh, derivative books uh, generated from it were actually publicly burned in paris and I think the, the Catholic Church was getting um, tougher and tougher as time went on. But during the time when uh, it was initially circulating, the, the two centuries, the 13th and 14th century, I think it would have been in ecclesiastical libraries um, and, and not hidden or tidied up. But uh, as you say, the smokescreen was the introduction of a completely irrelevant prayer at each point in there. So it's, it's rather, um, it's fairly clear that they were a later introduction.
0: Do you feel that the the use of the Psalms in this, is that also sort of part of that smokescreen or is there a sort of magical efficacy to their presence? Because I noticed in particular I was sort of struck by, by Psalm 91, which tends to get used in this, in something sort of akin to its um, more broadly protective potential, which you see in something like say welcome manuscript four six six nine, but like less so in, in later traditional uses for it, uh specifically is like something to protect against plague. So are like the psalms sort of getting employed here, or are they also just part of the, the subterfuge?
1: Okay, well, psalms themselves um have been quite often dovetailed in with magic. So um there are specific psalms for consecrating certain magical uh, tools. Uh, David Rankin did a, a rather good collection of psalms explaining what they were used for. But I think in the context of the Ars Notoria, there a later introduction, I mean it's it's fairly straightforward. If the texts are in Greek originally in Constantinople where Latin was not commonly used, then Latin prayers and psalms um, and hymns are obvious additions as it uh, migrated in a westward direction after um, after Constantinople was attacked by Mehmet. A lot of monks fled, carrying precious manuscripts with them, and I think the Hours Notoria is definitely one of them. I would love to go back and find the original Greek text, but uh, that looks like um, rather difficult at the moment. So uh, that actually doesn't answer your question, does it? Um, yeah, Psalms are definitely part of magic, but not part of this particular uh, book of magic
0: okay so they could be they could be left out um i suppose actually speaking of, of what you can leave out and what you can't this right opens up with a very i wouldn't say a terribly elaborate but certainly a very long initiatory phase um that includes fasting and, and doing a lot of preparatory work to get to sort of generate a dream in which you are presumably given the go-ahead to do the rest of the ritual or not. Yep. What happens if one doesn't do that initiatory right first? Are there going to be negative consequences, or will, will it simply not work, do you think?
1: I don't know, because uh, whenever I've used it, I it's been a result of getting an okay dream after that procedure. Again, it's fairly unique, because most grimoires just say, okay, you can evoke this spirit, or Invoke uh, th- that demon or so, whatever without giving the, uh, the spiritual entity any choice. But this this ritual, as you say, um, you do a number of things, including fasting. I mean, fasting is is common to almost all grimoires, the whole solomonic magic um, selection. Um, but you ask, as it were, permission to do it and if you get a definite dream which shows you have got permission, then you can go ahead. But at least you have asked the, um, the spirits, the angels or whatever, for permission to call them and do this, uh, which is unique, um, rather than just blundering in and saying, you will please come now and manifest before me. Uh, so there's, again, another difference with the other um, other grimoires. I would have liked it to have been a Solomonic one, but I think Solomon is just included there because he was the arch magician, and so they had to put him amongst the authors. But I think the real authors probably were Apollonius or some of his uh, school descendants and, mm-hmm. um, and possibly Mani, but not much is known about the founder of Manichaeism.
0: Do you, in your research or in your personal experience, what would you say has been, have there been any sort of themes on what these dreams sort of tend to have in them? Like, is there sort of like a central form or is it more just sort of, you know, everyone's dream is probably different, but the dream definitely says yes or no?
1: Yeah. So I've compared notes with um, other colleagues who've done this because before I set out to publish the Ars Notoria, I I thought I had to work it first, because if it just didn't work, then I wouldn't have bothered to publish it. Uh, It would have just been another, um, uh, I don't know, just another manuscript. But uh, I got a very clear dream. I'm not going to tell you exactly what it was, but it wasn't the same as my other colleagues, who also had unique dreams, but with a very definite thumbs up. Uh, whatever the angelic equivalent of a thumbs up is, and so we went ahead and, and did it. I haven't spoken to anybody who got a negative dream. I've spoken to two people who got no dream the next day, and I, I think that probably means they shouldn't have gone ahead to do it. Um, what would happen? I don't know. I think probably nothing, uh, rather than anything particularly negative
0: so you're not you're not um at all concerned about i believe there's a there's a story that comes up in vol a of a person who supposedly read the ars notoria without the sufficient respect and awe and then was cursed with um, being unable to speak until their dying moment when they exclaimed that they had been tortured by angels until that very point like that that doesn't give you pause or anything <laughs>
1: I think that gives everybody pause, the idea of being tortured for the rest of your life. He was tortured by, was it three or four angels, one which made him dumb, another which uh, made him unable to do anything else, yes, but you know, this is magic, and there are some parts of it which are a little bit risky, I don't think anybody, well, I mean, like the story of Faust, he gets worse than that, he gets torn to shreds uh, before dying, Um, these are pretty stern warnings. Well, (laughs) what can you say? I mean, Uh, don't don't do it unless you're prepared to take a certain amount of risk. And of course, if you get a clear positive dream, then that that will make you feel that you are not going to be um, tortured in the same way. On the other hand, I imagine that the authors um, would have written these uh, experiences up to try and dissuade people from just um, starting it casually. I mean, if you look at the, the Goetia, there are so many people who just casually sit down with a spirit sigil um, in their favorite armchair and uh, read out the invocations. And that is not a very sensible thing, because this, the system says that you must be protected by a circle and wear oh, a phylactery. Then you should take some note of that. It's, it's not just put there as a joke.
0: Actually, speaking of like the, the the many tools and and preparatory uh, rites of Solomonic magic, did you find in your experimentation that it was helpful to do anything sort of along those lines when you're working with the Ars Notoria? Because it's it's a pretty bare bones system in terms of what you actually need uh, in terms of tools or or sort of you know to lay out the room in any particular way. Is there? Did you find it helpful to do anything? in terms of tools or or you know uh room decoration is a bit is a bit dismissive to call it like you know uh but changing the character of the space let's say
1: no i didn't um i didn't find it necessary to do that i did uh observe the timing because timing is always important in magic and uh the the restrictions about when you can do it but um I didn't, I have to say, I didn't use a circle and I didn't use a layman for this particular operation because the book doesn't ask you to. So that gives you one little pause for thought. Uh, if the entities involved, and there the must be entities involved, uh, were angelic, then maybe it's not necessary. But um, So I suppose the bottom line is I didn't, and I didn't come to harm. I. I'm a great fan of observing the text as it stands uh, rather than taking, uh, adding anything to it, or more particularly, um, certainly not removing anything, because I think that uh, if you remove um, protective uh, conditions to say a goetic ritual, then you're asking for trouble. Uh, I mean, the classic example was Alistair Crowley sitting in the triangle during a goetic working which uh, as the triangle is reserved for the spirit, that seems like asking for obsession. And you could possibly say that after that, Alistair suffered somewhat. But um, we're not here to talk about him. We're here to talk about the Notoria. I think in a lot of ways, the Notoria is relatively benign. You're not asking for anything that your head couldn't otherwise do, but you're asking for it to be made much easier. And indeed, I found that there were several subjects that i wanted to um, look into and absorbing the information came a lot easier now that might have been purely sub, uh, psychological but i don't think so i think there was a real change in the absorption rate
0: in terms of the uh, the spirits that are involved because there are some there's some angelic names there are some demonic names there do you get the sense that i mean do, is there is there any sort of clarity you can offer on whether or not this is angelic or demonic or what relationship this has with angels and demons cuz you bring up at one point uh the four kings as having some kind of connection potentially to the the note themselves that there there are some some lines in there that might be sigils or my my misunderstanding. Uh
1: what what do you saying that the note might be sigils?
0: oh that they might they might contain um sigils of the the kings of the four directions.
1: I would I would say that the kings of the four directions like Egan uh, Paymol etc are spirits that you don't want to mess with. The, the whole point of Solomonic magic is that you use the, uh, we're going out of Ars and going to Solomonic for a minute, you use the name of the superior spirits like the four kings as a way of persuading or enforcing uh, what you want done by the, the spirits further down. Uh, magic is, uh, certainly Solomonic magic, is definitely hierarchical and, and one way of proceeding is to start at the top of the hierarchy and then work your way down. Another way of proceeding is to start with the name of a specific spirit and then lay upon that spirit your commands by invoking higher up the chain spirits, which he may be a little bit worried about. But with the the Alice notoria, you're just stating the names. It's almost like, I have the right to do this because I have mentioned Four angels and uh, half a dozen demons, etc. So, but I suppose the the bottom the answer to your question is I am still not sure. I think it's a a mixture of angels and demons.
0: So the the subjects that that one can study with the Ars Notoria are you know the classic scholastic subjects um, rhetoric, philosophy, theology, and so on. But if someone wanted to try to use the Ars Notoria to study something a bit out of the purview of a sort of European monk of this time period. Do you have any advice for adapting it? Like, for example, the the grammar, let's say. If you wanted to study the grammar of something other than, I think Latin is sort of a characteristic thing here, but like if you wanted to study the grammar of Cantonese, um, yeah. using the Ocenatoria, is there... Is there a great deal of work that you need to do to sort of make that switch?
1: Well, you could say that the, um, the angels aren't likely to know Cantonese, so they can't help. But that, that would be wrong. Uh, the thing about grammar is it's simply the framework or the system. And I think it's true when learning languages, and, and I've had to learn uh, more than a few languages, that the framework is very helpful. Uh, very sadly, uh, certainly in the UK, the teaching of grammar has more or less ceased, except in the literally the grammar schools, um, leaving kids with more of a task if they have to learn another language. Because if you understand how grammar works, then it's much easier to put a language together. So, yes, I have applied grammar to the learning of classical Greek, which which I learned before. But I tried to accelerate my progress. And yes, it certainly did seem to accelerate the progress. So it wasn't that it just filled my head with more grammar. It actually helped in the process of learning a language. Now, all of this sort of data is, is subjective rather than objective. I didn't do before and after tests there was enough work to do just using the system but other people have applied it to uh, have applied logic for example which is one of the the classical subjects to the learning of computer languages and they found that that eased their burden considerably so the the seven or eight classical subjects are still usable today i sometimes think that if people learned rhetoric um, which is one of the classical subjects, that they'd be better able to express themselves. So if you think about the the classical things, it started with grammar, so you have to know how to speak a language. Uh, in their case, Latin, but in our case, English or some other language. And then you apply to it logic, so it gives you the ability to argue. And that's um, that's something that seems to be a bit lost on Facebook these days. People do not seem to understand um arguing uh, except as shouting at each other, whereas in fact it should be a very careful construct um, to persuade other people that your view is right because you have given the logical steps to explain why it's right or they have given the logical steps to explain why your view is wrong. This is a more classical way of arguing, so logic is very useful. And then rhetoric gives the ability and, and definitely increases the ability to speak in a more convincing way, to produce the arguments that are necessary to win the discussion. And I won't say argument here, I'll say discussion. So those uh, in the first group of classical subjects are very useful, and the second group of classical subjects are concerned with mathematics, and and so you had uh, geometry, um, which I have to say is the one subject that has survived unchanged for the last uh, 3,000 years. Whatever Euclid said is still true, whereas other subjects like, for example, physics, what uh, Newton said uh, was to an extent overturned by Einstein. And what Einstein said has been overturned in modern times by the the strange and weird string theory of modern physics. So there's no consistency throughout. But geometry is true still in exactly the same way as it was uh, 500 BC uh, with um, Euclid. So what I'm saying is that the subjects that form part of a classical education are universally and still applicable. Um, so you can apply them to computer programming, you can apply them to you know, just winning an argument, you can apply them to working something out logically. Um, so yes, modern subjects can still be learned using this method.
0: If you wanted to go even further afield in terms of subject matter, is it is it could you conceivably try to learn anything as long as you sort of found the right classical subject to sort of apply to it, or would it ever be necessary or even possible to try to generate new note, new orations for something that seems well outside the purview of these classical subjects? I mean, like uh, a friend of mine asked me about uh, feng shui, for example, which I guess you could sort of put under the under the general header of philosophy. But if you wanted to do something, say, more specific, would it be possible to generate new note for for new horizons of learning?
1: Okay. Well, my my first reaction to that is nobody knows how the note were generated in the first place. So it would be very difficult to generate new note. If you just think that it's sort of um, any old rubbish that you can say, then you'd be wrong. There, there is definitely order and, and use in the note. In the case of uh, feng shui, I've got to take some issue with you. It's not a subset of philosophy. If anything, it's a subset of geography because it deals with the, the landscape surrounding the house in uh, whose... Uh, level of um luck you are attempting to increase but you know i've got a special axe to grind with feng shui because i've spent a lot of time on it uh no i hadn't even thought of applying um of applying the atlas to geography and i can't see one of the uh, lang- one of the subjects there being of any use for learning feng shui. but uh who knows maybe somebody will figure that out
0: okay i mean Given those angel names, I guess there someone could conceivably try to to conjure and channel any of the angel or demonic names in there to see if someone has some help to offer on something like that. So, in terms of the scholastic subjects, various forms of virtue are sort of described as scholastic subjects to be learned by the Ars Notoria. The Ars Notoria at least promises to teach us virtues like chastity and peace and awe. Okay,
1: so there were um, note for chastity. I don't think it means chastity in the sense of sexual abstinence. I think it means chastity in the sense of purity, uh, which was necessary before most magical operations. I mean, fasting for three days before is is quite common. And so you... um, you eliminate uh, a certain amount of the food that's still passing through you during those three days. Praying, of course, has always been part of monkish chastity. But I think it's more trying to get yourself prepared and ready for doing these things. And as a routine, the Isenatory is quite tough. You have to do these certain set things at certain times over a period perhaps of two or three months. But at the end of which, if it succeeds for you, then you have the great advantage of, of being able to save a lot of other time, uh, not, uh, You read something once and a lot of it sticks, which is not, not always the case. But anyway, it's sort of I'm going off. So chastity is in there as a virtue. justice, peace and awe, or um, religious awe. These are, these are things the monks would have found useful, I guess. And so to be able to learn those or uh, manifest those would be good. And then reprehension and taciturnity, which is a little bit hard to, to define. But these are, these are the almost the add-ons at the end uh, and aren't really part of the classical um, subjects. The I mean, Classical subjects being grammar, uh, logic and rhetoric, followed by the four arithmetical subjects music, arithmetic, geometry, and astronomy. Because definitely astronomy needs mathematics. And then a slice of, as it were, postgraduate studies, which would be medicine, philosophy, and theology. Of course, in those days, theology was seen as the supreme accomplishment, uh, which would have been true for monks and priests. I don't think that many people nowadays will be concerned with um, uh, the- uh, theos. I almost said theosophy with theology, and I can't actually see how the theology uh, note could be used for another subject.
0: Have you had much experience, or have the 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 sort of has the 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 group that you've been testing this out with have have they has there been much experience in terms of using this specifically for learning magic? And would do you do you conceive of using the note to learn magic as sort of a question of you know picking up. Um, something like the Lomegaton and just being able to remember all those spirit lists verbatim or something maybe a bit more, you know, exploratory. I'm I'm making connections, suddenly I see, you know, that the that the spirits of this are the spirits of that or they're they're all around us. We're, even now, I see them in the darkness of the night or something.
1: Yes. And and the other other advantage in terms of magic would be learning the evocations, which are long and and go on and on and on. And this is is useful in Solomonic magic uh, so that you don't spend your time trying to find your your crib sheet or your piece of paper with the thing written on and trying to read it uh, just by candlelight, etc. It's much more effective if you can just run it off straight from memory. Uh, and for most, most um, Solomonic uh, rites, that is the better way to go. So yes, Ars can certainly help you memorize long and turgid evocations. You mentioned also uh, using it to figure out connections between spirits. Well, the, the spirit register, the spirit list in the Goisha, is obviously something that has been uh, redacted or re-edited a number of times over its life, uh, and it would be sort of handy to be able to Reassemble it in a logical order so that it's divided into seven planets and 12 zodiac signs and uh, connecting up which of the senior spirits or which of the senior demons rules the the lower ones. All that would be useful, yeah.
0: That sounds amazing. So there are some elements of the Ars Notoria that are not... Part of this larger ritual framework. For example, there is the um, "Yesu die filius." I'm I'm butchering the Latin, and I feel very bad about that. But like the "Yesu die filius," this this prayer that can be used as a tool of prognosis in a medical situation. You know, you do the prayer, you get a sense. You know, is the patient going to live or die? Is the patient like how are they going to do with this with this illness? And I I am curious about this in particular because it 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 sort of falls outside of the larger ritual framework so do you do you see this as something of a, do you get the sense it's sort of just an add-on like someone had this kind of hanging around and they thought well you know I've got the ars notoria I'll just I'll just pop it in there Cause this is my big book of magic or do you see it as being like directly linked to definitely. these
1: definitely definitely it's something that's been popped in later i can't uh, i mean obviously monks sometimes acted as doctors uh, on the local local people coming to the monastery because they're ill but um uh, it's not exactly something uh, which will help you cure the patient certainly if you just tell him well i've, I've figured out the spirit has told me that you're going to die so don't worry about the medicine. That um, that doesn't sound very good. Um, no, I think they're almost certainly add-ons uh, because this is started off as a, very much the classical subjects and then a couple of monkish subjects were added at the end and then a couple of little procedures for doing other things. So all, all grimoires finish up with add-ons at the back. There's a couple of keys of Solomon with a whole lot of um, additional rituals at the end. Um, for doing specific things and it's almost like the magician had the main text and then he discovered oh there's this interesting procedure here and I've written it in the same book and so when the manuscript was copied yet again it was copied as if it was all part of, of something. I mean a classic 20th century example of this is when Alistair Crowley published M- Mather's book of um, the Goetia and in Mather's notebook um, which I've seen he copied out the, the actual Goetia, and then he started to copy the next one, which was the Theurgia Goetia, which has the, um, the uh, sort of compass rose showing which spirit comes in which direction. And then he copied some stuff from, um, what was it, some, some figures drawn from classical sources. And all of this was dumped into Crowley's version of the, of the Goetia. Crowley did not see that it was obviously a different text um so people have been confused by looking at the cojo goisha compass rose and wondering how does that even connect with the goisha and the answer is it doesn't it's part of the second book but anyway that's that's neither here nor there but uh, the fact is that people will add on stuff Uh, they will not want to waste parchment. They're still writing in the book and they found something else interesting. And so they've written it there as well. And then it has become apparently part of the main text. And I think that's certainly the um, will the patient live or die procedure. Uh, But it's also interesting that it suggests you can just ask the the angels, demons to give you um, a vision and a quick answer. Uh, Maybe it works like that. I haven't tried that.
0: I mean, it is sort of, if it goes if it goes poorly it is certainly it does put you in an awkward position i imagine but speaking of that of that particular rite you know we've got in there among the angels encore onocor anilos and and theodonius which or theodonos which sounds a lot like theodonius from the beginning of the sort of heptameron's vesting prayer do you get the sense that they're acting in that sort of same way of like there's there's something sort of cleansing or preparatory or vesting going on with their with their presence in that prayer? Or do you just – is it just sort of, you know, these are – again, we say the names of angels in the Ars Notoria and demons and we don't know what they're doing there. But they're – you know, you say them and something is certainly happening.
1: Yeah, the uh, the one that you just quoted um, is fascinating because it appears in a number of grimoires. Uh, it appears in the, um, I can't remember the, but several that have been edited and printed recently. It's a, obviously a very old evocation. It appears in um, Conjurer's uh, books. I, I published um, a version of it in uh, the same series. Um, what was it? Uh, yeah, Cunning Man's Grimoire, it appears in there as well. So it was obviously a sort of um, standard item that's always good to pull out. And the the names are also used sometimes on the vestment or on the crown. So um, I really should try and figure out where it came from originally, but I, I don't really know that at the moment. But uh, you're saying, what is the nature of that particular thing yes it could be a sort of purifactory it could be a, a sort of consecratory um, set of phrases i think it's probably the names of um half a dozen angels
0: okay and and one of the 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 owners of a copy of the Ars notoria was was uh, sir sloan of the famous sort of sloan manuscripts treasure trove of magical texts and of course sloan was a was a celebrated doctor do you get the sense that he ever used the Ars notoria or at least used this uh Jesudai Filius' prayer in doing his doctoring?
1: Well, um, Sloane probably assembled the largest collection of English and Latin magical texts that have ever survived. There may have been other larger collections, but they didn't survive. Sloan was very rich at the end of his life, and he insisted that his collection should be sold to either the king or to some of the academic societies for £20,000, which even he said was about a quarter of its value, but he wanted to be sure it was preserved rather than anything else. So did he use it? Well, David Rankin and I have traced a number of angel magicians uh, from the 17th to the 18th century uh, who passed these manuscripts from one to the other, from um, Summers, etc., etc. And I'm pretty sure that they must have used them. Whether they used this particular medical thing, I don't know. I should think Sloan probably gave it a go. He probably didn't tell his patient, yes, you're going to die, the angel told me. Uh, if he got a negative, he probably kept it to himself. If he had a positive, then then maybe he he told his patient. But he was also a good doctor, so the chances are most of his patients recovered. But um, getting back to uh, this, the higher not the hierarchy, the lineage of angel magicians in England, most of them interestingly living near or in Worcester. Um, or Eversham around there, Uh, and some of them related to each other. There definitely seems to have been some concerted practice, because you don't spend a lot of money buying manuscripts on magic when You could buy historic manuscripts. You could buy one of the early copies of the Magna Carta or something like that, which would be more of a collectible rather than focusing on magic. I'm very glad they did focus on magic, but I'm also very certain that they must have used it. And um, Sloan was infinitely curious about all sorts of things. He also collected the base collection of what is now in the uh, Natural History Museum in South Kensington in London. Um, So, whatever it was, he wanted all of it. So, there's an element of that with magic. Unfortunately, he did finish up with almost all the currently, uh, with the manuscripts passing through auction, etc. A lot of his fortune came from having invented and marketed milk chocolate because he had properties in the colonies which produced cocoa and he couldn't sell that to the English. So, he invented milk chocolate, which they like much more and, and still do if you want good black chocolate. But now you probably go to Belgium, but milk chocolate is still an English speciality. But anyway, getting back to um, did they use it? Some of the the tools of magic have been discovered, like the scrying mirror found its way to uh, Walpole's collection in Strawberry Hill. And um, although it's surprising that a lot of uh, separate talismans haven't survived, although I expect that talismans might have been pocketed and worn out after a while. Yeah, I think they used it. I don't think they used every single ritual, though, because that would take you several lifetimes. Uh, I've attempted to use a lot of the material in, in Sloan's collection of, of magical manuscripts, but I'm still a long way from getting to the bottom. For magicians who were around 50 years ago, and, and that includes me, when you could not buy, uh, there was university books, uh, reprints of weight and maths and so forth, But there was a great shortage of books on magic. Most of them were produced uh, around about the turn of the century by Mathes and Waite and and that gang. And in the 60s, those are virtually all you could buy. As far as grimoires went, if you bought the Lesser Key of Solomon and the Greater Key of Solomon and um, Abramilin, you probably felt you'd got it all. And so it came as a bit of a shock to find that there are literally hundreds, probably thousands of other grimoires hidden in libraries. And I say hidden because a lot of librarians looked at these and thought, ah, we can't catalogue it as a, a book of sorcery. And in the case of Ars Notoria I usually put it down as a book of prayers, which I suppose is one way of describing it. But these have been dug out by people like Francis King, myself, uh, David Rank and Joseph Peterson, and published. And then on top of that, there's a lot of modern practitioners who have then used these things and produced their own books on magic. So yes, now there's a huge number of books on magic floating around. Uh, some of them very good, some of them not so good. And it's really not possible to read and/or test all of them. So you have to be a little bit more discriminating. But this is a good thing. The information is out there. The, the Inquisition is no longer looking to check your library and take you away. Uh, the uh, Witchcraft Act was repealed in England in I don't know, was it uh, the 50s or the 60s? And so then Gerald Gardner could could produce his book on witchcraft, his several books on witchcraft, and also his novel. In uh, his novel, High Magic said is a great, um, a great little book because it has both Solomonic magic and witchcraft in the same novel. And and he used Mathers' edition of the Key of Solomon to, to, to spruce up and add real material. So starting way back then, things have got better. So there's now much more information. It's just a pity that then people have gone into sort of fantasy magic and And what um, David sometimes refers to as dark fluff, which uh, one could actually do without. But then at least it's there. So you have the chance of buying it, uh, reading it, discarding it, or using it. So things have got a lot better. And you have to also think that some of the fictionalization of magic has also helped because people have begun to accept it a lot more rather than looking at it as something naughty and or dangerous.
0: Yeah, I mean, I... I, I think there has been a great benefit to magicians at large that the worst that you'll probably be taken for is some kind of embarrassing nerd as opposed to, you know, someone who's poisoning the wells, murdering the children. Have Have you given any thought to writing a novel yourself?
1: Um, no, I haven't. Um, I have uh, only written one work of fiction and it didn't include magic and it's probably the least circulated of my books. Yeah, it's an idea. Uh, I, I would like, first of all, to cover all of the factual side of it before I get into the fiction, and that's going to take me more than one lifetime anyway.
0: Well, hopefully it'll go faster now that you have the Ars Notoria to help speed things up. Um, we're probably coming up on time, so I, I should actually ask you before we go um, about timing. How forgiving is the timing of working the arts notoria because i mean we do have like a schedule in here that really charts it out in terms of you know a calendar year when best to do this if you really yes. were just very eager to get going on your astrology um, or your astronomy and you were hoping to start at the less than optimal time could you do that or would it just sort of fall apart
1: I think the slightly less than optimal time uh, will be okay but um I've never deliberately started at the wrong time just to see if it would work or not So I can't really comment on that. Over on the Solomonic side, timing is very important. Uh, Not astrological timing, but choosing the right day and then preferably the right hour of the day is quite important. And it struck me some time back that every culture attributes planets to the seven days of the week. So the the Indian uh, god of uh, Chandra Uh, is attributed to Monday, uh, just as the moon gods and goddesses attributed to Monday. I can't off the top of my head quote you uh, moon goddesses across a large number of cultures, but they are, and it's Monday. And uh, uh, Thursday is um, definitely Jupiter and uh, Zeus and the same in very many other cultures. So I think that because this is true across many cultures, that it must be universally true. And therefore, um, if you are doing a, a ritual for Venus or Freya, then you would choose Friday, preferably the correct hour, rather than choosing Saturday or Sunday, because I think then you would get a um, not such a good run. And inside of the day, uh, if you're choosing the right day, then just as a a hint, probably the best hour is the first hour of the day. So immediately after the sun's risen, but before it's lit up the world, uh, is a good time to start not only are there less people around which is always a help and the earth is a little bit quieter but that seems to contain more of the nature of that of that planet in the, the first hour of the day one of the questions i'm often asked is what if the ritual goes over into the next hour the, the clear answer that it doesn't matter it's uh, Dallas magicians are quite clear that where the ritual is started that is its timing and if you run over that is neither here nor there, because if you started at the right time and you get the attention of the gods, spirits or demons that are relevant to that planet, then you've got their attention and you can proceed on. They won't suddenly turn off when the end of the hour happens. So that might be of some use to some people. So the the timing in Ars Notoria is is not the uh, planetary days and planetary hours, but it's still it's still very much specified. And I think when a grimoire, any grimoire, specifies timing very specifically, that you should probably try and follow it. And if you miss once or twice, I don't think you'll be held to account for that. But uh, it might take some of the shine off, the, off your
0: results. Okay, I think that's that sounds very reasonable. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. This has been really lovely. Before Before we close out completely... I mean, this is a book of instructions, so it's just, it's nothing but advice and and background. But if you wanted to leave people who are curious about the Ars Notoria with a final thought or a final piece of advice, is there something that you would want to to make sure they know before they, they plunge ahead into the, the wonderful world of scholastic magic?
1: Huh. That's an interesting way of referring to scholastic magic. Yeah, that's, that's pretty good. Uh, well, the first point is you should read both books. You should read the background book because the, the first volume of the by uh, myself and Daniel, because that contains the best photographic images of all of the note in five different manuscripts. And you can look through and even choose which style appears to you best. Um, so that's that's essential because the note is essential. So getting a good a good note um, picture, which you can actually inspect in some detail is important. The second important point is it would be very helpful if you memorized, but in the case of ours notoria, if you're repeating it on a number of different hours, uh it'll pretty much creep into your memory anyway and if you leave the odd name out it won't uh it won't uh, undermine your whole operation otherwise well as with all magic it's practice practice and practice and keep a uh, note of what happens because I found so many people say, well, I did this and it worked. And then the next time I did, it didn't work. And I say, well, did you record what the conditions were in each case? And the answer is usually no. Uh, one thing that John Dee and Alistair Crowley had in common is that they took extensive notes, which means that uh, if you look at it in a scientific way, you can go back and see what the commonalities are. In one of Crowley's diaries, I listed out uh, all of his sex magic operations and the conditions and the results. But and that's the sort of approach I like to take. So please write it down, at least write down what you did, uh, which of the uh, subjects and the time and date and, and the part of the day that you did it in and keep it because later it will be useful to you.
0: That was, that's, that's, that's great advice, I think, for anyone who's trying to do this in a systematic way. This is, this is marvelous. Stephen Skinner, thank you so much. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me thank you so much to steven skinner for taking the time to chat if you want to learn more about him and if you want to maybe get your own copy of the Ars notoria i will have links in the show notes to his website and also to where you can learn more about the two volumes of the Ars notoria that he has published if you want to support the show and if you want to maybe get some patreon exclusive content head on over to patreon.com slash our theme music was performed by Sebastian Bavarstam, recorded by Edward Lee, and that little snippet of the Goldberg Variations that you heard earlier in the program and you are hearing again now is performed by Kimiko Ishizaka, who very generously performed all of the Goldberg Variations and then put them in the public domain, and is also, i understand, an accomplished power lifter, so that's cool. This has been Witch Hassle Good luck with the work ahead.